Thank you very much, uh, Darren, for uh, reading God's word for us. Welcome, church, to ARPC at Bishan. We are embarking on a series of studies uh, this year, beginning this year, from the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. And we pray that you will faithfully uh, follow the studies and you will faithfully take some time to uh, finish reading the Gospel of Mark. So for today's sermon is an attempt to give you an overview uh, of the Gospel of Mark. Now, the year 2022 has just begun. And if you are familiar with some memes that have been going around, 2022 can be pronounced as 2022, which means 2020 again, because the pandemic that started in 2020 is still not over. And that is why this year, 2022, looks like season three of 2020. Now, whenever a major event, such as the pandemic, whenever a major event happens, literature is produced to help us cope and make sense of the situation. And so books have been written on working remotely. Books have been written on working from home. Uh, books have been written on how the viral outbreak could have been prevented and who is to blame for the uncontrolled spread. And for Christians who quickly see the pandemic as God's judgment or connect the event to Christ's second coming, well, there's also a book for that as well. Like uh, N.T. writes, God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath. Crisis Major events, challenges at any age, they cry for explanation. They cry for help. And so written works are produced to address those needs. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written during a critical time when Emperor Nero persecuted the Christians. A great fire had hit Rome, a fire that uh, spread uncontrolled for at least nine days, imagine fire, nine days, it destroyed two-thirds of Rome. There was suspicion that Nero himself masterminded the fire because he wanted to rebuild the city in his image. But Nero, you know what he did? He pinned the blame to the unpopular group called the Christians. He pinned the blame to them for the fire. And this blaming started the mass execution of believers. So they were killed. They were burned on posts that resembled lampposts. It was, my friends, a crisis for God's people. And this might have led to questions about suffering, questions about faith. You see, if Jesus is the Messiah that the apostles Peter, that the apostle Peter and Paul preached, why is the evil Rome still in power? And Mark's gospel, which drew heavily from Peter's uh, uh, preaching, from Peter's teachings, from his accounts, might have been written in response to the persecution. For in this gospel, Mark explains who Jesus is. He tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, no doubt, except that he is not your kind of Messiah. 
And this, I propose, is Mark's overall message from his gospel. Jesus is God's promised Messiah, but then he is not the Messiah that you'd expect. And here are the reasons why. Well, firstly, Mark starts his gospel stating the subject plainly. He says that it is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is a Christ, meaning the anointed, or technically the Messiah. But that, does, but that is not all. Jesus is also the Son of God. And Mark, in his fast-paced narration, um, in the likes of a six-episode Netflix series, Mark shows, shows us proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. But this Messiah is also the Son of God. So, for instance, he shows us at, that at Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened, and the Spirit came down, descended upon him like a dove, and a voice, God's voice that is, spoke, saying, first slide comes up, you are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. So this man is not just the anointed one or the Messiah. He is too the Son of God. When Jesus went to the synagogue, there was a man who was possessed by an evil spirit. And you know what he did? He disclosed Jesus' identity. He says, next slide, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Chapter 1, verse 24. In fact, here in this gospel, each time Jesus faces demons, Mark tells us that they are terrified because they knew his real identity. You are the Son of God, chapter 3. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, chapter 5? Jesus would command them to keep quiet about his identity before driving them out. Jesus, the Messiah, is the Son of God. And His power over demons displayed His authority as the Son of God. By the way, that is the word that keeps coming out in this gospel. The word authority. Authority. When the people heard Jesus teach, they marveled that He taught as one with authority. They noted that he was unlike the teachers of the law. Why? Because Jesus would correct uh, the Pharisees' teaching about, for instance, about the Sabbath. And how does he do that? He healed a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And you read that in chapter 3. And he would declare that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 2. That my friends, is some show of authority. And Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees' hypocrisy and he would tear down their traditions, traditions that they teach which undermine God's commands. You read that in chapter 7. So examples, uh, traditions that exempted people from financially supporting their parents. Traditions that mislead people to think that unclean hands and unclean foods 
somehow defile because Jesus would say what really defiles a man are from within, not from outside. What really defiles a man comes from one's own heart where uh, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and so on. These evils come from inside and are the ones that make one unclean. Chapter 7. And so with authority, Jesus declared all foods clean. Chapter 7. That's why you and I can rejoice eating bakute. Then when the Sadducees came to him with a riddle to try to disprove the resurrection, what did Jesus do? Jesus told them bluntly that they were in error. That resurrected bodies, they take on different roles. They are different from the present worlds. Jesus would also tell them that if God described himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob certainly did not remain dead. So you see, Jesus taught as one with authority. He demolished, he tore down the wrong teachings of the teachers of the law. And so Jesus is not just another rabbi. He is the Son of God. And what he teaches, what he says, are not without authority. His teachings supersede the teachings of the Pharisees. His words demolish traditions that nullify God's commands. And you know, this tells us that the words of Jesus because they are authoritative, they cannot just be equated to words of wisdom. They cannot just be likened to sayings that, you know, find itself in a coffee table book. The words of the Son of God are God's words. They carry weight. They are spoken with authority. If wind and waves obey the words of Jesus, we must submit to what he says. We obey him. We take him seriously. And so we must not read his parable uh, of the sower as simply, uh, for instance, a witty lesson on uh, attentiveness. So Mark chapter 4 tells us, because it's more serious than that, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty. 60, 
or even a hundred times what was sown. We should listen to this parable as not a witty lesson on being attentive, but as a warning, as a warning not to fall away in times of trouble or persecution. We should watch out for the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the fleshly desires that compete with God's word for our attention. You know, they even compete for our time with God's word. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how long it takes to read the Gospel of Mark? How long it takes? It took me about two hours. But I was told that the average time is 1.5 hours. So after all, it is not a six-episode Netflix series. After all, it is only about the length of a low-budget movie <laughs> or a chick flick. Yet, how many of us prefer to binge Netflix or Korean dramas? How many of us prefer to binge those to reading God's Word, or the Gospel of Mark, which will only take 1.5 hours? If we treat Jesus' words as authoritative, we will make it a point to read them. We will hear them. We will accept them gladly and bear much fruit in Him. Jesus is the Messiah, but He is also the Son of God. He speaks God's Word, and He calls for our obedience and submission. And with regards to Jesus' authority, don't miss out on His authority to forgive sins. See, when Jesus healed the lame in Mark chapter 2, He healed him, and then He said, so that you may know, He tells the teachers of the law, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Now friends, you and I are weighed down, bogged down by our sins. You and I are condemned. You, are not, you and I are canceled by people whom you've sinned against. No matter how hard you try or no matter how hard you reform, there seems to be no forgiveness. But here's the good news. In the Gospel of Mark, there is forgiveness from the Son of God. Why? Because He has the authority to forgive sins and set you free from guilt and slavery to sin. And the Bible tells us that if the Son sets you free, you are free. You will be free indeed. And so friends, do not belittle Jesus' authority to forgive sins. It's too good an offer to pass. And by the way, it's not a scam. Jesus is the Messiah who is the Son of God. He has authority. And His Word calls for obedience and submission. His words dispense forgiveness. And so do not disregard His authority. Secondly, Mark shows us that Jesus, the Messiah, is a suffering servant. Yes, Jesus did not shy away from calling himself the Son of Man. 
the Messiah. And in so doing, you know what he was what happened? He was alluding to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and given authority, glory, power, and dominion over all people. And so the miraculous healings that Jesus did, his calming of the storm, his teachings uh, that led people to amazement, they responded by saying or asking, who is this? Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Chapter 4. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? Isn't this the carpenter? Chapter 6. And those who have heard, those who have seen what Jesus did, they are pressed to answer the question, Who is this man? And that is why I think the turning point in this gospel is found in chapter 8, verse 27, when Jesus pointedly asked his disciples after performing lots of miracles, after speaking with authority, he now pointedly asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Mark chapter 8. And from that moment, when Peter understood who Jesus is, from that moment, Jesus began to tell them the hard truths about the Christ, shattering, of course, the people's expectations. Jesus is the Messiah, yes, but not the Messiah that you expected him to be. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he tells him, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So what do we see happening here? There is mismatched expectations. Mismatched expectations. To Peter and the disciples, the Messiah's mission is to address humans' concern. To Jesus, his mission is to address God's concern. So what is God's purpose in sending Jesus the Messiah? Well, perhaps what could be the key verse that summarizes the gospel? Here it is, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus the Messiah came to preach. That was his mission, to preach forgiveness of sin 
and provide for the forgiveness of sin through the giving of his life. As a ransom, in order to free us from God's wrath because of our sins. And his death atones for our sins so that we are forgiven and we are restored back to God. His messianic role does not square with people's expectations. You see the people, they wanted a Messiah who will defeat the Romans, who will bring about liberation, who will usher in lasting peace, who will establish finally God's kingdom. All of these were human concerns. But God's concern is far greater than human concerns. God's concern uh, is not to destroy Rome, but it is to destroy an even greater enemy than the Romans, and that is sin and death. Sin and death. Now we understand why Jesus had been keeping a low profile. Now we understand why he ordered demons to shut up. Now we understand why he told people that he healed to go home. You know, don't go to the village, don't show yourself around, go home. Now we understand why he wanted to keep a low profile. Because Jesus didn't want to hype the people's messianic expectations. Why? Because Jesus, he came to serve not to be the served Messiah. Jesus, my friends, is the servant Messiah. You know, we hear words like servant leaders. Well, Jesus, he is the servant Messiah. And the servant Messiah does not set his eye on worldly greatness, which is why when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest among them, what did Jesus do? Jesus sat them down and told them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. And he must be the servant of all. Now, he also told them, because they still didn't get it, you know, after that lesson on servanthood, that they ought not to be like the Gentile rulers, like the Gentile lords who rule over people, who lord it over people. They are instead to be a slave of all. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of Man, that was what He was like. That was what He did. He came not to be served, but to serve. If you've been following the news, many Christian leaders fall into sin and disgrace. Why? Because they've modeled themselves after the world's Messiah where you have sense of entitlement, control, confidence, narcissism, dominance, immunity from accountability. These are all characteristics of rulers. Jesus the Messiah, to whom we ought, we ought to look to and from whom we model our lives, he had none of those qualities. He doesn't rule over us like Gentile rulers or lords. Instead, he shepherds. See the big difference? He
He does not rule over us. He shepherds. And so discipleship is a call to servanthood. It is a call to quit dreaming greatness and the world's accolades because a servant serves to please only his master. And you know how the servant serves? He doesn't even expect a thanks. You know, one test of servanthood is, it, is if it bothers you that your name is not mentioned. If somebody forgets to give you credit and it bugs you, perhaps you aspire to be more a master than a servant. So today, if you downloaded the bulletins, the song leader has the name, Grace Nandar. But it's actually Christy Nandar. So if Christy, if it bugs Christy, bugs her very much that he won't be, she won't be able to sing the closing song later, then it says something about servanthood. If you are not invited to be part of a project or a committee or a ministry and it irks you, remember, you are called to be a servant like Jesus. But then if you are a part of what you perceive to be an inner circle of greatness, look at what Jesus told his disciples. Next slide. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Why? Because he was not one of us. And Jesus says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. What is Jesus telling John here? He's telling John that driving out demons is not exclusive to the twelve. There is no elitism in following Jesus. We are all fellow sinners called to follow Jesus and become his disciples. And we are all servants of one another. The Son of Man, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lastly, Jesus the Messiah is the Messiah who suffers and dies. But he is raised back to life. So in the Gospel of Mark, three times, Jesus says the Son of Man will suffer. Three times he would tell his disciples that he will be handed over to be killed, but then he will rise again after three days. And you see that in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And so Jesus is not the people's kind of Messiah after all. This is the Messiah who would be poo, spat on, who would be not fighting back. He is the Messiah who will be arrested without a fight, without a struggle. He is the Messiah who would be disowned by his own followers. And Jesus, Jesus himself expressed feelings of abandonment by his father. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But when Jesus breathed his last, Mark tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Does it signal that the way to the Holy One is now open for us? I believe so because Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus entered the most holy place which was un inaccessible to all. He entered the most holy place by His blood once and for all. And as a result, He achieved for us eternal redemption. Jesus is the Messiah who ushered in peace. But it's an eternal peace between us and the Father. So when people asked what they wished for and what they longed for, Miss Congeniality, if you watch the movie, would say, world peace. And we hear that and we would laugh at that. Why? Because we say world peace is just wishful thinking. Try again. What is it that we ought for, ought to wish for, ought to long for? We ought to wish for and to long for peace with God. Peace with God. To be forgiven our sins, past, present, future. To appear before God without shame, without guilt. To appear before God right in His eyes. To wish peace with God, my friends, it is not wishful thinking. It is possible. It is attainable. Because Jesus the Messiah gave His life as a ransom. And with His death, the curtain was torn in two. We are now reconciled and at peace with the Father. Jesus is the Messiah who suffers and dies, but He is raised back to life. And so the call to discipleship, to follow Jesus, is a call then to endure suffering till the end. Jesus, after all, did say, Mark chapter 8, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And he continues and he says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Why must we who follow Jesus, why must we endure suffering in following him till the end? Well, because Jesus the Messiah set an example for us. His obedience to death achieved for us good, which is our forgiveness and reconciliation. And so that means that when we endure suffering in faithfulness to Jesus, we must believe that it brings about good. And it will, ultimately, because the Son of Man shall return in glory with His holy angels, 
And when he returns, he will not be ashamed of us. So we read the Gospel of Mark, and we read of Peter. Peter who failed to stand up for Jesus. He was confident he could, but he failed. When push comes to show, he backed out. He even cursed to pretend dissociation from Jesus. Now you read that of Peter. Please tell yourself, don't be too hard on Peter. Because you and I were not there. But when Peter learned about Jesus' resurrection, you know what happened? He became a changed man. He went on to preach boldly of Jesus. He pointed to the Jews, their sin. He pointed to the Jews for their responsibility for Jesus' death. But he offered forgiveness that is found in Jesus. Now tradition has it that Peter was martyred and he was crucified upside down. So what empowered him? What empowered him to deny himself and take up his cross? Literally take up his cross. Well, it must be the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, his promise to return as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven must be true. Hence, this gospel of Mark, this gospel of the Messiah, must serve as an encouragement to stand firm, to look to Jesus' return in the midst of persecution. So we would want to ask ourselves, do you and I live for the return of Jesus? I pray we do. I pray we do, because that expectation helps us to live each day in obedience and in submission to Him while we await His return. That expectation helps us to endure suffering when we suffer because of Jesus, knowing that when He returns, we will be commended. Perhaps that's the reason why Mark's gospel seemed to have ended abruptly, right? So if you read Mark's gospel, it seemed to have ended abruptly. We were told that the women went to Jesus' tomb. They didn't find the body. Instead, they found a man. They were afraid. They, this man told them that Jesus has risen. And the end has it that the women fled from the tomb. They were afraid. That's it. Is it the end or is it not the end. So I don't, don't know if you like or dislike movies that have open endings. You know what I'm talking about, right? Movies that have open endings. It ended in a way that leaves you to guess whether the story has ended or you and I should expect a sequel or season two. But to say the least, the story here in Mark's Gospel he did not do this to suggest that there's a sequel. He probably did this to tell us the story has not yet ended. Jesus is alive. He will return. Hang in there. Be faithful. Believe in Him if you have not. Endure. Because the Son of Man 
shall return in the Father's glory, in the clouds of heaven, with the angels. Let us pray. Father, we ask that we be found faithful in following and obeying your Son, our Messiah, who came not to give worldly peace, but who came to usher in eternal peace with you, granting us forgiveness because he paid the ransom with his blood. And so for us who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus, we pray that we will make the decision to give our lives to your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whom alone can we find forgiveness, reconciliation, and new life. May we live each day anticipating and expecting His return. May we endure suffering because we look forward to the commendation from your Son. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.